Good afternoon, I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I am a faculty member at the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is a school of public affairs at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. I want to start by thanking Blue Cross and Blue Shield, which has uh, supported this series on health policy for a number of years. Uh, we talk about health reform, we talk about issues surrounding uh, community uh, health, we talk about obviously um, uh, issues around cost and healthcare expenditures um, and medical care provision. So it's across the board. Uh, we try to encourage a conversation that brings in different perspectives um, in a civil uh, manner. And uh, one of, just before we get started, let you know at the bottom of the screen, you'll see there's a Q&A button. Um, and that is your opportunity to become part of our conversation. Um, those of you who've been coming to our events know that we rely on your questions and that becomes a big part of what we talk about. So please use it, give us your best questions, uh, challenging questions, most welcome. Um, also, you'll see there's a live uh, transcript uh, service there. If you wanna be reading um, what we are talking about, you can do that as well. Um, I want to welcome and thank you for joining us for today's program, Access to Healthcare After the Pandemic Emergency. It's good to have with us uh, Lucas Nessie, who's president and CEO of the Minnesota Council of Health Plans. Mr. Nessie. Well, thanks, Larry. Uh, welcome, everyone. It's, it's great to see so many people interested in this topic. And as Larry said, I run the Minnesota Council of Health Plans. That is the trade group for Minnesota's nonprofit plans. Uh, that would be Blue Cross Blue Shield, Health Partners, Hennepin Health, Medica, Sanford, and UCARE. And I, I think I want to start to say by start today by saying I think we have reason to be optimistic or at least glass half full because this conversation starts with Minnesotans covered at historic highs right now as far as health insurance. And that's just great news because that means individuals are healthier, families are healthier, and communities are healthier as a result. And those historic numbers were thanks to many policies along the way, none more important than those related to the federal public health emergency. So accordingly, our conversation today, our panelists are going to focus on continuing that high rate of access to health care as a public health emergency and the associated policies come to an end. But to best understand the challenges, that are currently coming our way, we need to first understand the various policies that were implemented before the public health emergency to support access to needed medical care. So I thought I'd give you all two high-level examples of what that looked like here in Minnesota before asking our panelists and Larry to talk more in depth about their work to support Minnesotans throughout that transition. The first is access to COVID vaccines, testing, and treatment. So Minnesota's nonprofit health plans were some of the first in the country take voluntary action to support their enrollees in the pandemic with no cost sharing, voluntary waivers on cost sharing for inpatient treatment and no cost vaccinations. The federal government eventually stepped in to mandate all health plans across the country offer no cost sharing for testing and vaccinations and even provided coverage for those without insurance throughout that emergency period. As those policies expire, what comes with it is return to normal procedure. COVID coverage will revert to traditional measures that resemble other acute illnesses such as strep throat or the flu. Uh, still COVID is unique in many ways. So health plans and regulators are working closely together to make sure access to needed care continues to be strongly supported. Second, 
for those on public programs such as Medicaid or Minnesota Care, special rules were created to suspend the need to submit a yearly renewal or updated eligibility information. And that meant that anyone in the past several years has been on a state public program stayed enrolled regardless of their specific circumstances. The impact of that policy was significant with enrollment surging upwards of 30% to what is now 1.5 million people in 2023. Resuming that process might sound simple on its face, but redetermining eligibility for a record number of enrollees after a three-year hiatus is gonna be an unprecedented amount of work for the state, counties, and tribes who process the renewals, as well as for the health plans who support those enrollees. While we know that most Minnesotans will continue to remain eligible, we also know that several thousand Minnesotans will not, or even if they do remain eligible, might not complete the needed steps to remain covered. We're currently advocating at the legislature, and there was a hearing on this yesterday, actually, we're hoping it's going to be expedited, we have reason to be hopeful that it will be, that additional funds will be allocated to MNSURE for the Navigator program to increase the amount of direct help available to enrollees, along with increased funding for critical IT system upgrades to process that enrollment. Minnesota is also fortunate to have a stable individual market. There's enhanced federal tax credits available currently, and bipartisan legislation last year continued the state's reinsurance program, reducing premiums on average of 20%. That support's gonna be especially critical for those Minnesotans transitioning off of Medicaid and Minnesota care as they seek affordable coverage options. So we all know the unwinding of COVID policies will present challenges, and that's why I'm proud that a public-private partnership between the state, tribal, county, and health plan leaders has been working hard for several months now to proactively identify ways to keep Minnesotans connected to health insurance coverage. We have infused that collaboration with lessons learned from our successful vaccine equity initiative, and our collective goal is to minimize avoidable gaps in coverage. For more on those innovative approaches and strategies, I wanted to turn it back to Larry and the panelists to continue the conversation. Thanks again for having me. Thanks again for your interest in this topic, and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you, Lucas Nessi. Um, it's gonna be a great conversation. I'm very excited to have with us uh, two people who I think are gonna be very helpful uh, in digging in where we're heading, uh, particularly for folks who are deep into the issues and the weeds, but also folks who are wondering, what's the big deal? There is a big deal here. First, I'd like to welcome Mac Matt Freeman, who's executive director of the Minnesota Association of County Social Services Administrators, for those of you who are not familiar with Minnesota healthcare, a lot of the action in healthcare and other needs-based programs is at the county level in Minnesota. So this is a very important part of uh, where we're going. Um, it's also a pleasure to have with us Cindy Mann, who's a partner at Manhattan Health. She's been involved in health policy at a high level for 30 years. I got to know Ms. Mann uh, through her leadership of the implementation of the Affordable Care Act uh, where she was director of the Center for Medicaid and the CHIP service, um, and, which is a very important part of this. And I'm going to jump in on that uh, dimension right away. Um, Ms. Mann, again, thank you so much for having us. Um, since you were you know, at the birth of the Affordable Care Act, and we're, we're dealing now with a program that's a dozen years old, and obviously it's, uh, had, it's had quite a journey. Um, in the couple decades before the Affordable Care Act was passed, the uninsurance rate, it varied a little bit, but it kind of hovered in the 15 to 17% range in terms of those who were uninsured um, just before the Affordable Care Act was signed into law by, by President Barack Obama. 
the uninsurance rate was 16%. What happened once the Affordable Care Act was, was implemented? Could you walk us through what we saw? Sure, sure. And um, first of all, thank you for inviting me to join this um, discussion. It's a really uh, timely and important one. So to applaud you for, for pulling it together. Um, also want to really thank you for starting with the the, the question you asked, which is what did the ACA uh, bring us in terms of changes in the uninsurance level? It seems like the basic question, and um, uh, uh, but it's also, you know, often we jump right to the latest issue and the latest um, uh, thing that's worrying us. And it's good to step back because as you say, um, what the ACA did is it maintained um, ESI, employer-sponsored insurance, as the mainstay of what uh, how people get coverage in America. But there were a lot of people who didn't have access to affordable-based coverage um, before the ACA was passed and continuing today. Minnesota actually has one of the strongest ESI coverage rates in, in, the, in the country. What the ACA did is say, Everybody should have insurance and putting aside people who aren't, don't qualify for public programs based on citizenship or immigration status. Really what the ACA, if you step back, what the ACA intended to do was to say, there's a, there's a, let's make affordable public uh, insurance available either through Medicaid, CHIP, or the marketplace. Uh, for people who don't have affordable uh, employer-sponsored coverage. And it really changed the paradigm. The paradigm is that people should be eligible for coverage um, and, uh, and, that, um, uh, and that they can afford that coverage. And so there was a Medicaid expansion, which uh, we can talk more about what happened. Certainly it was uh, put into place in Minnesota. To, to fill a gap in the Medicaid program on eligibility. There was the creation of a marketplace, both the federal marketplaces and then for states that chose to do it, the, the state-based marketplace. There was the basic health program option, which Minnesota has taken advantage of. Um, and, and all of those together were really trying to um, knit together a, a, a system of coverage. And um, CA coverage began in January 2020, uh, that was 2014. Um, and by 2016, just two short years once that coverage kicked off, uninsured rates dropped nationwide to a historic all time low. We had never gotten that low before. So we were 13.7% um, nationally in 2016, down from almost 20%, 19.6. Some of our numbers are a little bit different, I think, depending upon source. And for expansion states, states that picked up the Medicaid expansion, like Minnesota, the, the, the uninsurance rates dropped to 7.6%. If you look at all the states that expanded Medicaid, and, uh, and, and uh, so, so really extraordinary change. I mean, all of us who work on public policy see changes happen in very slow measures, right? This was not a slow measure. This was a big change in, uh, in the law, and there was a really big change um, going forward. And in Minnesota, your uninsured rates dropped by more than a half. They were 9.4% in 2023, 2013, and 4.9% uh, in 2015. So big, big changes. Yeah, and you played a, a big role in that uh, from your leadership in Medicaid. And uh, many of us remember um, your, um, your championing of the program and the need for change, because there was a lot of 
um, suggestions for ways to kind of go it slow and and you were saying no we've got to we've got to jump here um, I want to ask you you know jump ahead uh, COVID hits uh, in tw early 2020 Congress uh, responds says there's a public health initiative and they pass a, a law that was aimed at trying to uh, make access to Medicaid continuous can you talk a little bit about that sure let me add one other thing about what Congress did. So um, often during, not always and not automatically, we should change that, but that's a different story. Um, but often during an economic downturn, Congress will say, hey, you're going to have more people on Medicaid and the, Medic the federal government and the states share the cost of the Medicaid program, but states during economic downturns have greater difficulty balancing their budget. Um, and so it has happened in the last several recessions or anticipated recessions that the federal government increases the, the share of Medicaid costs that it will pick up. So Congress did that in, in one of the very early COVID legislations. It increased the match rate so that states would get an extra 6.2% bump up in, in the share that the feds were, were paying for their Medicaid costs. It also said in that same legislation um, to states that if you accept that match rate, you need to keep people continuously enrolled in the Medicaid program during for, for as long as the pandemic lasts. And remember, this was in March and nobody knew how long the pandemic was going to last. Many of us thought, man, three weeks, five weeks, whatever. And so uh, they, but it was a public health emergency. And so they thought this is not the time for people to be losing coverage. So with the added match rate, they required states to continually enroll. And so what that meant is that for all states since March 18th, 2020, anyone who was on the program at that date and anyone who came on the program after that date um, has remained involved in the program. Unless, you know, they voluntarily left or they died or left the state. But basically, um, uh, the Medicaid um, Enrollment has remained has grown remarkably because people have been added to the to the program and not been uh, renewed and terminated. Yeah, it, it it actually had a big impact on in further reducing on insurance rate because you had about a thirty percent increase in Medicaid enrollment. It's uh, it was it's one of these um, kind of not often talked about um, uh, impacts of. COVID, as tragic as it was, in a number of areas, it actually led to changes that you would say were positive. And one of them was to further reduce the uninsurance rate. Let me jump ahead and, and ask you, now that we're, we're seeing the federal government as of December in its budget, um, it said this public health emergency is coming to an end. Um, states have got to have plans in place and begin to go back to normal in terms of making determinations as to who's eligible for Medicaid. Um, and it gave the states until April 1st. What are the, the concerns you have, uh, just thinking you know, broadly, um, that the country ought to be thinking about? What are the risks that we face in terms of this looming, you know, it's just a month off, April 1st deadline? Yeah. So let's go back to also what the ACA did, and then we can talk. I think that'll give us a sense too of what some of the, the the concerns and the risks are. So because of this paradigm of coverage, right? 
ACA didn't just create new subsidies for people, but it also, and, and in the regulations that, that, that I worked on and many people worked on in the implementation of the ACA, is um, to address the issue of people being eligible but not enrolled. Right? And so it's not enough to just say people are eligible, but you really got to you know, make it simpler for people to apply and then make it simpler for them to retain their eligibility as long as they remain technically eligible. So there were a lot of simplifications put into the law and put into the regulations. And really the idea was to as much as possible rely not on paper, but on a data-driven system to be able to check eligibility, both initially and at renewal. Um, but not all states have gotten to that point of having their systems reformed or revised such that you can rely on the database systems. And not everybody can rely on the database systems. So, um, so now here we are in 2023 and people have come on the Medicaid program. We have about, as, as, as Lucas says, I think 1.5 million people now on the Medicaid program in Minnesota, Medicaid Minnesota care. Um, and it's a big jump up as, as it was across the nation. And now the state, like every state in the country has to renew nearly every single one of those 1.5 million people. So what's the worry at this point? Is that just like, okay, everybody has to get their eligibility renewed, that's fair. Um, why, why are all of us, I think, here today? Because there's concern. Um, one is when you don't have those uh, IT systems in place, you then, you the a state, need to then rely on paper and send out forms to people to say, fill out this form. We've always had problems getting people to fill out forms. I have problems filling out forms when somebody sends something to my uh, mailbox, right? But um, uh, but the risk is that much higher right now because we've had a pandemic and people have moved and people have not been in touch with their Medicaid agency because they haven't been renewed. Um, and so we have um, uh, we don't always have foreign addresses for people and we don't always know their current whereabouts. And so what happens in Medicaid is if you can't do a data-based review of eligibility and you send out a form to somebody's address, it may come back and they may not be getting the form. They're also not gonna be used to regularly expecting those forms, opening their envelope and providing the information. Um, because they haven't gone through a renewal period, maybe ever, um, if they were a new enrollee, um, or at least for three years if they're an old enrollee. Other issue that we have is if you're going to send paper out to people as opposed to doing it database, um, you're going to get people not responding right away, needing their address updated. And there's a big stamp shortage at many of the counties and state agencies across the country. And, um, and they're finding it difficult to just have the workforce on hand to be able to follow up with people, you know, first tell people about addresses and then follow up with people afterwards. So you have a little bit of what, what, what I think of as the perfect storm, right? A very large number of people that have to be renewed. Systems that aren't necessarily ready um, uh, to, to rely on data sources and are, are, are heavily reliant on paper. People have moved, follow-up is needed, and there's staff shortages. 
So the yeah. problem I think that we're all worried about is um, most of the people should still be eligible, if not for Medicaid, then for CHIP, if not for Medicaid and CHIP, then for Marketplace, for Minnesota Care um, and Marketplace, um, is will they fall through the cracks because of the paperwork, because they don't get it, they don't know what to do with it, they haven't followed up with it, whatever the, may, the problem may be. And that's, I think, the big concern is losing eligible people. And the Urban Institute, uh, which is based in Washington and a highly credible uh, source for research, um, they estimated recently upwards of 18 million people might lose coverage. Um, and that, that's on the higher end than some of the other estimates I've seen, but that gives you a sense of the magnitude of the problem facing us and why you know, Cindy Mann is articulating um, you know, the sources of that. Uh, it's also worth noting that there's all sorts of spillover effects from that. Um, we used to have a problem, we still do, but it's been lessened, something called uncompensated care, where someone receives treatment, um, but there's not a payer or insurance of some form, public or private, to pick up the cost. Well, that's probably going to be going up. Um, we've also got a pandemic that or an endemic that is still with us, and folks, um, you know, may find their access to testing and vaccination and treatment, um, you know, curtailed. And that's also a concern. So lots of big issues here uh, related to uh, the problems that Cindy Mann is pointing to. I want to bring in Matt Freeman. Um, Matt is, um, you know, one of the people who works and follows what's going on at the county level. Um, Matt, I want to get into where Minnesota is, but could you give us in a nutshell why the counties are so important when talking about Medicaid and the so-called unwinding or the starting up of eligibility determinations. Why are the counties so important? Thanks, Larry. Again, I, I represent uh, the human service directors all across uh, Minnesota and the 87 counties, as well as the commissioners. And we have a state supervised county administered human service system, which means that uh, there's a responsibility delegated from the state to do a lot of uh, the work, including around re-enrollment and enrollment in medical assistance and, and Minnesota care in our state. So um, as we're looking at the 1.5 million uh, beneficiaries that we're looking to re-enroll over the next 12 months, uh, vast majority of that work is going to be done uh, by county staff. Um, and and it's going to be... And just to be clear, this is not the norm around the country, right? No. Um, most of the states, I think there's nine to 12 that are uh, state supervised county administered in, in different um, programs or issue areas, but we're, we're unique. Now, there are small and large counties, um, you know, or small and large states that our county uh, administered. California is an example of that, Ohio, Colorado, but um, it means that we look a little bit different than some of our neighbors and how we're gonna go about this. Um, and so the state is doing some of the enrollment for uh, folks that are um, enrolled in specific programs, but the vast majority of um, that work is gonna be done by a county eligibility worker um, who will process that. And one of the challenges in Minnesota is that we, um, our technology is not as up to date as we would like. So we have a paper-based uh, system. Um, so folks who can do an auto enrollment, um, auto renew um, will be a limited number, but the vast majority of cases will need to be manually renewed. So that's a staff member at a county level, really uh, taking that information and, and putting it in. In the past, when we do enrollments, uh, 
you see what folks were enrolled in previously. You have a pre-printed out form of, of what you were included. We're going to um, this cycle in the re-enrollment, uh, a blank form. So you're gonna be filling out new information as well. And so there's a, a risk that folks uh, don't fill out all that the same way and are dropped off of different services or don't immediately become eligible for that. Um, and we know that uh, the folks who are enrolled in MA, um, again, are our most vulnerable um, in our state. 40% uh, of the state's children are enrolled in uh, medical assistance. Um, and uh, that this overall unwinding process is really an unprecedented, it's a complex, it's a, a difficult process over the next uh, 12 months with real, uh, real implications for folks in our community if they're not uh, staying on uh, medical assistance. Yeah, so if you go back to the list of concerns that Cindy Mann had about this transition, you know, the, the lift in Minnesota could be particularly complicated given what you're describing. It's paper-based, it's not online, uh, it's a county-based uh, system. All these add uh, complexity. And let me just fill out a little bit more of what Matt and Cindy said to say that the racial disparities uh, that we're likely to see moving through this transition could be quite significant because of the disproportionate use of Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program uh, by people of color. So this is going to have a lot of implications, and it's starting to get some attention, but um, it probably needs more. Um, Matt, let me read you um, the conclusion to a Star Tribune editorial last week. Uh, it said, this is an all-hands-on-deck situation to ensure that people eligible stay on medical assistance program and those who lose eligibility have a smooth path to other coverage options, a perennial state health standout like Minnesota to show the rest of the nation how to do this well. Are we on, on a path or a, a glide path to doing that? I mean, how confident are you that, that Minnesota is going to do this well? I think there's still a lot of work to have confidence that we're going to do it well. Um, the first folks who will be dropped from their um, eligibility and stop receiving services will start in July. Um, and the national numbers for disenrollment, I think, are around 17%. Um, we're expecting Minnesota somewhere 15 to 25. And then a, a burden or a, a challenge to likely re-enroll 30 to 50% of those who are eligible but just don't go through um, those processes to um, to qualify. And so it's not only the enrollment um, and renewals, uh, it's going to be the role of county staff uh, to work with those folks who aren't uh, re retaining their eligibility, ensure they're connecting to appropriate services, um, that they're able to access uh, health insurance elsewhere, um, and we'll be triaging uh, emergencies as they arise. An example would be uh, somebody that shows up at their pharmacy and no longer is able to get their um, get their prescription and they'll be calling their county and saying what's going on I need this this is a um, essential medication for me and for my health going forward um, and so that county staff member um, that gets the call will be triaging that and responding uh, to those emergencies across the board and uh, medical assistance um, is a is a core eligibility for a lot of other areas as well so um, if you're needing substance use disorder treatment um, and MA and who pays for that is at the core of that. If you're needing non-emergency medical transportation, um, so uh, for example, a drive to your dialysis appointment, um, your MA eligibility is gonna determine who um, 
who pays for that um, or whether you're able to get that and get scheduled for a system. So it's going to be a really uh, big and heavy lift. Um, and because of the examples that Cindy laid out, uh, there are a lot of barriers to that. The state's put together a, a plan where we're doing a rolling enrollment over the next 12 months. Um, they've worked hard on some of the communication because as a enrollee and medical assistance, you may hear my eligibility is ending. Is it end for me now? Does it end for me in four months, in 12 months? When is my turn to re-enroll? And so communication and coordination between our health plans, between the state, between counties is really important uh, so that we don't have all 1.5 million people showing up at the county or state door trying to re-enroll um, at the same time. And then um, trying to make sure that ultimately um, we, we do it right and then for those who don't get re-enrolled, we either connect them with other programs that they are eligible for, or that we do that um, triaging and that outreach um, that isn't necessarily the enrollment eligibility worker's job, but uh, a broader social worker, case manager. Um, how do we do that outreach to the person where we don't have the right address and we track them down to ensure that they uh, are included? So it, it's a lot of work. Um, I think we still got uh, a lot of work to do to prepare. We were at the legislature uh, yesterday, Lucas referenced that, asking for additional resources for navigators. We had counties were asking for additional resources for technology systems, bringing on additional staff uh, over time um, for folks to do that outreach work to, to staff call centers. And the state of Minnesota Department of Human Services asked for uh, over $20 million to deal with their additional administrative burden of doing um, the work that's ahead of us. So there's there's a lot of work and I think additional investments that we need to do in our system uh, as we're going. We've been doing planning as the continuous enrollment has been um, pushed back or has been extended um, every 90 days for the last uh, couple of years. Um, but now we're at that go point where um, folks have to do the work. And I think uh, counties are um, understand the gravity of the situation, the importance of their work, and are motivated to do it well. And I think we're trying to gather all the resources we can to make sure we, we do it well. And so uh, when we talk about the transition in Minnesota, it's not as if uh, this is the first time you've thought about it. The counties and the state associations and the, the uh, Council of Health Plans, there's, there's been conversations and conferences and meetings about this for, for some time. Um, so you're not caught flat-footed. No, no, that's that's true. We have been working and planning and tracking this, having regular meetings. I think, you know, to an example of one of the pieces of preparation we've been working with um, Lucas's members, the the health plans on uh, updating some of those addresses. Currently, we the state had to apply for a waiver to be able to. Um, accept new updated information that came from health plans for our re-enrollment. Originally, we weren't able to just uh, take Lucas's uh, members' word for it that somebody had moved and include that and mail it to a new address. Um, so even if we knew that their address changed, we had to utilize the one that we had on file. And the one of the challenges of the continuous enrollment was um, you couldn't take any adverse action or uh, do additional changes to somebody's eligibility during that time. But it also meant um, that 
the information we had and the contact that we had with uh, folks who were eligible for medical assistance meant our, our data and our information is less up to date because it hasn't been as regularly updated. So we, we do expect a lot of those uh, snail mail registration requirements uh, to come back. And um, we're still working through some of those kind of archaic requirements like having it being mailed out versus using some um, electronic email, text, other services to update some of that information or to inform folks that they need to re-enroll. I want to bring Cindy Mann back in the conversation in a second, but before I do, um, Matt, you, you mentioned that you were at the Capitol. I know there's been conversations with the governor's office and legislators. Um, what is what are some of the conversations going on at the Capitol? What do you what do you see that you would say this could really make a difference? Um, I would say there's some expansions in coverage um, that are both mandated by the federal changes and being eligible for the increased federal dollars. Um, so expanding coverage for children, um, 72 months continuous eligibility for children under six um, and 12 months continuous eligibility for children six to 21 means we won't be churning those folks off. And, and I think that's a really important group as we look at how many children are on MA. And let's, yeah. just, let's just pause on that for a second because um, that's, that's something worth just um, focusing on. There's something called churn um, that affects Medicaid, that affects other programs. But the idea is, let's say you have a, a parent who gets a small raise at work, it may just push their, their eligibility for uh, medical assistance or Medicaid just above uh, the threshold to receive it. And um, if you don't have this continuous coverage, then you have a situation where people are literally moving on and off the program frequently. And this is known as churn. And so what Matt's referencing are some steps to say, look, let's not do this so frequently. Let's take a 12-month um, continuous coverage for a kid. Um, let's look at where the eligibility is after 12 months and not create so much uh, chaos and um, instability in their coverage. Matt, what else do you see going on at the legislature that you, you think is worth uh, highlighting? Yeah, I think um, we're also looking at expanding who is able to be covered. Um, I think that's uh, helpful, um, aligning with some ACA requirements for um, former foster children who are moving into the area, expanding who can uh, be eligible for Minnesota care. And so that's our healthcare program for folks with low incomes, but who don't necessarily uh, uh, apply or don't qualify for medical assistance directly or the federal uh, benefits. And so expanding that out and increasing access to health insurance um, by changing the threshold or the the level of income for that, I think is um, is helpful. Increases in technology investments so that our um, information systems can communicate better and we can do electronic verifications uh, and make it easier. We do have a renewal self service. Uh, technology um, that has been worked on so we can move away from as much of that paper-based system um, that uh, we're excited about in the long run, but implementing new systems in the midst of a um, burdensome task like this unwinding is, is challenging. And I think they're looking at um, as well, how is managed care or how are our public programs administered? There've been um, 
proposals that have come from the legislature about changing uh, who manages that care for our public programs. Is that controlled by a contract at the state or allowing folks to opt out of managed care for fee for service or other pieces. So there's a, a ton of moving pieces right now at the uh, legislature that could impact access to, to healthcare in different ways. But I, I've heard from the administration's proposals an interest in keeping people on insurance expanding um, who would be eligible and, and what they would be eligible for and then uh, creating an easier access uh, to enrollment. Things like you can opt in on your um, on your tax forms um, for uh, for eligibility, um, and then that requires our systems to talk and communicate properly, but hopefully makes it easier for folks to enroll or stay enrolled. Thank you, um, City Man. You heard that the Star Tribune referred to Minnesota as a perennial state health standout. So, as you look around the country at what you're seeing states uh, pursuing in terms of um, the um, the kind of restarting of the eligibility determinations for Medicaid. What are some of the national standards? What are you seeing that you would say, look, Minnesota, if you're really serious about being a standout, you ought to be doing this or these things? Well, it's not going to be just me, but it's also probably going to be CMS talking to Minnesota about it, it too. So as, as I noted before, the law does require these um, database checks and, and and not relying on paper. Minnesota is not the only state in the country that is not uh, doesn't have its systems yet in compliance and is relying heavily on paper. With the the law that uh, Congress passed, you you mentioned it uh, earlier, Larry, and I didn't get to it. Um, that um, at the end of two thousand and twenty two. Congress passed a law that said, okay, um, uh, regardless of when the public health emergency ends, we now know it's going to end on, on May 11th, but they didn't know in December when it was going to end. We're going to set the date for renewals to begin again, and we're going to give states actually a little bit more money through the end of December of this year, December 2023, to help uh, weather the storm in terms of the expenses that they have um, picking up on the, on the renewals. And states can start doing the renewals and the terminations as early as April. And as, as Matt said, um, Minnesota's gonna start, but not do the terminations until um, starting in July, which a number of other states are doing. So, so um, uh, what the law requires, both the new law, but also the pre-existing laws that states comply with the federal law about how, you know, not relying just on paper. And since states are not all ready to um, uh, to make that move, CMS will be has been offering states and will be looking over the next period of time, couple of weeks states to pick up what it calls mitigation strategies. So what can we do, given that we're relying on paper, what can we do to really make it easier for people? Are there other data matches that Minnesota is capable of doing? Like, can we, can we look at who's on SNAP or can we look at who's on TMS and say, good enough, let's, let's uh, keep them going on Medicaid for a while and the feds have allowed those kinds of waivers to happen. So I think there's gonna be some serious conversations already going on and, and will be going on over the next couple of weeks about what are the mitigation steps that, that, that Minnesota can take. Some other states are, for example, it's 
some people have no income, right? People who are homeless, people are, are um, out of work. and But it's hard for a state to verify you have no income. So CMS has allowed some flexibility to states to like, if you had no income the last time we talked to you, and there's no data that shows you, you now have income, you can accept that you're a zero income as opposed to you know chasing somebody down for paperwork to show you have no income. So um, uh, also, if, if you are not up on addresses, is the state using different modalities, telephone, emails, texting, to be able to reach people and say, make sure you update your address because we are gonna rely on paper. So those are some of the things that, that other states are doing. One of the things that I think Minnesota is doing um, well, and you've all mentioned it, is really it, it, it is a public-private partnership. It will take a village. And I know the health plans are really getting engaged and trying to update addresses and trying to support their their um, their members uh, for doing that. You know, I, I talked to one state that's listing their pharmacies, right? I think as, as, as you noted, uh, um, people often find out that they've lost their coverage when they go to get a prescription filled, right? So pharmacies are really important sources of information to people, but also helping. How can I get you back on if you were cut off? Um, so, so, and the other thing I think that's really important that Minnesota is doing and apparently considering to do more is funding navigators. Um, you real, you know, some of this is 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 hard to reach communities, hard to reach individuals. Um, making sure, you know, some states, Massachusetts has funded navigators. They're doing door knocking in, in communities to really make sure that people know what's coming up and get the help that they need. You mentioned before, Larry, um, that there's also a health disparity impact that is is so prevalent across the country. Um, and we see that in, in Minnesota as others. A uh, big group of people in Minnesota that's disproportionately uninsured are, are Hispanics, Latino people. So what, you know, are there language barriers? Are there other ways we can reach out? So those are the kinds of things, some of which Minnesota is already doing, some of which you'll, you'll wanna continue to look for opportunities to beef up your, your uh, ability to, to not have people fall through the cracks. Ed, thank you very much. Uh, Matt Freeman, I take it from what you said that um, many of what uh, Cindy Mann has mentioned are things that are being talked about. Uh, let me just zero in on one of the mitigation strategies, which are um, ways to uh, make income determinations without saddling uh, individuals with filling out a form, uh, a form that, where they may not fully understand what's going on uh, in the form. Um, it's called ex parte um, um, uh, enrollment or renewal. Um, and is this a, a possibility using other measures of income that automatically renew people rather than relying on the paper and sending it out, maybe getting a wrong address, maybe the individual gets it and doesn't send it back? Yeah, Minnesota has been using some of uh, those more for focused on um, child support um, and cash assistance type programs. Um, but for example, um, there's a state contract through the work number, which is uh, verifies through employers and gets that information directly uh, sent to government. So you don't have to save and bring in your 
your pay stub to verify your eligibility there. I think there are opportunities to continue to expand that. And I think that's to our state's benefit and, and to the benefit of the individuals um, that are on these programs. Um, we all benefit when folks are covered, um, when they have uh, the services that they're eligible for. Um, and we're looking to improve improve uh, eliminating the barriers uh, to enrollment. And so you're- What will it take to get that done? What does it take? Does it require new laws? Does it require the counties to agree? I mean, is it, you know, you call a meeting and give some orders? I mean, what, what does it take to, to get this uh, change in, in the mechanism for determining eligibility? One of those challenges of our state supervised county administered system is that uh, the CMS or the, the Center for Medicaid um, Services uh, interacts directly with the state and then the state interacts, uh, interacts at a county level. So we don't get to make those decisions necessarily locally as a county. It requires a collaboration and, and a partnership. Um, there are a lot of uh, state laws that we've looked at in the last couple of years during uh, this peacetime emergency and said, uh, well, this is how we We've done it. Um, is that serving us well? We're doing it different because uh, of the emergency. Do we need to keep uh, some of these uh, requirements in place or um, what is really necessary on these eligibility forms to simplify our, our process? And I think that helps us in a technology system as well. When you have a system with 72 different checks, it's a lot harder to design uh, technology around it than when it has a simple number. So we're advocating for simplification in eligibility, alignment across different programs, um, automating and using systems where and how we can. And so it's a mix of federal requirements to be able to access uh, uh, medical assistance dollars and state rules and laws. And then it's integrating um, our system. So we're communicating from the, the state uh, to the county and also that we're working with our um, health plans and others at a local level so that that same uh, information uh, can, can be shared appropriately. Um, we battle, Larry, with a constant uh, balance between ease of access and concerns about um, fraud, waste, and abuse. And I think one of the things that I would highlight about this re-enrollment is that we're going to have a lot of people not enroll uh, or not re-enrolled. It's not necessarily because they're not eligible or because they were gaming the system. It's because it, it is arduous to get back on. Um, and so if you look just at the statistics of the number of people that won't be re-enrolled, you could say, look at all these people who shouldn't have been getting benefits when that's not necessarily the case. And so we need to make sure that we're looking at who and why they're not enrolling and taking those proactive steps to get folks back uh, enrolled uh, who are eligible. Because again, that's to all of our benefit to have a, a healthy populace um, and to be serving people more pro proactively, preventatively, um, and remove the barriers for folks to access services that they earned. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Cindy Mann, um, uh, there, there could be different ways to go about this transition. Um, and one of the states that I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about um, and is taking a, a different approach is Arkansas. Arkansas, under uh, Governor Sarah Huckabee, has said, we've got to reduce government dependency. And they are taking a kind of lickety split approach to immediately you know, sending out letters to tens of thousands of people and moving this process along more quickly. Um, is there something to be said for that approach? Is that 
Is that a, um, a legitimate way to go about this? How, how do you respond to that? Well, um, I'm not privy to all the details in Arkansas. I've read some of the press accounts on it. Um, but um, I think I think the, the sense, uh, if you think about that perfect storm, people's addresses, people having moved, workforce shortages in Minnesota relying on paper, the faster you do it, the more people are going to fall through the cracks because you've got a system which is, you know, it's not smoothly automated. It's, you know, if everything worked according to, uh, you know, you can ping this data system and that data system and everything was up to date, then you'd have a much smaller group of people that you have to follow up with. It is very difficult to do this even in a year, I think is what most states are feeling. And the federal government has been a very, uh, both flexible in saying you have a year and very clear that if you're taking shorter than a year, we're worried that you are shortchanging some of those protections that are essential to make sure people who are eligible stay enrolled in the program. So uh, so there'll be some added scrutiny um, and, and ensuring that um, any state that accelerates um, will will uh, is still following what the law requires, right? This is not this is a, a major health insurance program for, for the nation. It's the largest single source of health insurance for people in this country. Um, uh, and uh, this is not something to be taken lightly. And there are there are federal rules to be followed. And if you know the, the federal government will hold states in um, accountable for complying with the law. So if you can do it in five minutes and you've done everything the law requires and everybody who's terminated really is not eligible, then that's, you know, that's going to be okay. But the judgment, I think, of most states and the judgment of the federal government is that it's really not going to be possible um, to do that that quickly. And just by way of background, um, about a third of the state of Arkansas is on Medicaid. So this is this is not a small lift. It's a, it's a big change. Um, Matt, uh, Frame, I want to ask you a question. Um, uh, kind of circles back to something I said earlier, which is COVID has had these some ways surprising or unexpected positive uh, developments. Do you see um, the uh, public health emergency as possibly creating opportunities to move forward in ways that uh, you had not anticipated you know, before uh, COVID hit? Yeah, I, I do think it has. Um, this is something that counties have tried to look at over the last couple of years, too. Where are their modifications or waivers of requirements um, that have gone in place during the emergency that um, that we should evaluate uh, the validity um, and the benefit of continuing them in some way? Um, we tend to end up with systems um, that folks are bought into because they've been set up that way, they've been run that way, and and change uh, is hard. And I think we get a reset uh, with the emergency to look at things in a different way. The same way that we're gathered here, rather than in a auditorium at the Humphrey School, um, there are new opportunities for access. There's a demand uh, for access um, for folks to things like digital um, services um, and telehealth and and those kind of areas that we're going to continue to explore um, across uh, across our healthcare and our human service system. Um, so I think we uh, we miss an opportunity if we don't look at things through through that lens and we 
look at, um, again, the test case that we have of what has the impact of continuous enrollment been on health, on access to services? What is that benefit to our um, public health? And I know that uh, I work in human services, but my colleague for the local public health association, um, there's a ton of work going on uh, on community health and, and public health uh, to explore what, what have we learned and what can we do differently because of this, uh, uh, the learnings of the last couple of years. Great. Um, Matt, I want to hold you there because there, we've got a, a question from Chris Moen. How do these programs um, mesh with the Indian health system or are they standalone? What's, what's the connection? So uh, we do have, I believe, one of our uh, tribal nations in Minnesota that, it, that uh, does conduct um, healthcare eligibility enrollment. Um, each of our uh, tribal nations uh, has their own sovereignty and with that um, has the opportunity to take on some of the human service uh, services and apply them uh, and serve their, um, their community and their members in different way. But all of the, um, the folks from those communities, uh, our tribal communities, also are members of our counties and are served uh, by our individual counties. So our our focus is to ensure that we have enrollment um, for folks uh, across our, our full population. But I'm probably not the expert to tell you how tribal health services intersect uh, with our state and our and our local health systems. Uh, Cindy Mann, we've got a question here from um, one of our most astute health policy uh, thinkers, Jim Hart. He asked, most Medicaid in Minnesota is run through our private health insurance plans. Is this an advantage or a disadvantage given the challenges we're talking about today? On the unwinding issue in particular, um, I think that it is actually an advantage because there's an additional party um, stakeholder that really cares, right? They don't want to lose their members either. Um, they have a business incentive as well as a, a you know a moral incentive to to keep people covered when they're eligible. And um, health plans can really play a vital role in reminding their members that enrollment's coming up, giving them the dates when it's coming up, providing help to them if they need help and can't find a navigator, um, filling out the forms, um, helping to, you know, one of the things we should also keep in mind is we are going to lose people who are eligible. That's not, that, that's, uh, uh, it's not a threat, that's in, in, inevitable. And so we, we need to also be thinking about how are we going to quickly get them back enrolled if they're eligible. Right. Um, and so health plans, pharmacies, you know, primary care providers, FQHCs who start to see people who are now uninsured, um, there should be a back on ramp for people to get um, uh, to get back on. So health plans can really help in that regard as well. Matt Freeman question um, or eligibility system for the elderly, blind and disabled is a DOS system from the 1990s. Is that true? I mean, that, that's, that's, yes. that seems fairly remarkable. In any case, the question is, um, I worry that the technological investments that may now be happening will overlook these groups in favor of newer systems. Well, I think it's really important that, um, that we're intentional about 
properly and appropriately serving our elderly, blind, disabled communities. Um, the medical assistance eligibility, we think about that as going to your doctor, but it's also the eligibility um, for some of our um, nursing and elderly care facilities, um, some of our wavered services that folks can access. Uh, so I would say that these communities are even more important to make sure we have uh, enrolled and appropriately and, and that they can access their services. Our technology systems in Minnesota are vastly uh, outdated. Um, there is a need for a infusion of resources um, and it needs to be done in a way that that serves folks in the immediate time on the existing systems and the functionality they need and looks to replace those DOS-based uh, systems as well. Um, the counties have had a priority at the legislature for the last couple of years on this. There's a proposal from the governor for $129 million investments across a couple of proposals uh, to um, improve some of those systems. Um, but we, we need a, a reliable, ongoing funding source for uh, technology systems, for maintenance, for improvements, for replacement. Um, and we have um, we've dropped the ball in Minnesota on doing that. And I think there's a bipartisan agreement at the legislature uh, that that's the case. So my hope is that we'll have an influx of dollars this year, um, but it's not a one-year uh, issue. And so thanks for, for raising that concern up. Um, we don't get to go to Best Buy and pick out a different system. These are the state uh, systems that uh, counties are required to interface with. Um, and so we need them to work and, and to work well and to communicate back and forth because folks who are eligible in one area are often eligible in many others as well. And if, if, if I could just jump in on that, there, there is, there was a strong understanding in 2012 and 2013 that if states were gonna get ready for ACA and really, have the vision of a simplified, uh, coordinated enrollment system across programs and retention for as long as you're eligible that we did investment systems. The feds had agreed to, and continue, we'll put up 90% of the cost of the IT fixes for development and 75% for maintenance. So there is a, 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 a requirement at the federal level and uh, putting their money where their mouth is in terms of helping that along. So one of the things, um, uh, it, it, nothing in my mind in terms of this set of issues could be more important than getting those systems in place as quickly as they can for all populations. But you asked also a question a little uh, while ago, Larry, about what um, flexibilities some other states are doing that Minnesota might look at. One of the issues for the disabled and elderly population is they often have very steady income that doesn't change. Social security income, SSI income, and the feds have given states the option to say, if you if you have reason to believe this person has social security income, that's their only income, it's steady income, you do not have to go through a full renewal. And we can um, potentially avoid the problem of people in those situations falling off the program because they didn't get the paperwork and didn't renew. So that's one of the flexibilities that, that Minnesota might want to jump in on to really uh, at least take that worry off the table. Great, and if you wanna get in touch with Cindy Mann, um, you can find her online. Uh, she's very helpful and I can tell you she's, a, she's an encyclopedia uh, when it comes to Medicaid and other health programs. Um, I want to thank uh, Lucas Nessie, who uh, got us rolling this uh, this afternoon, Matt Freeman, 
and uh, Cindy Mann, our special guest um, from Manette and one of the, really the pioneers in setting up Medicaid. Um, I wanna take this opportunity as well uh, to thank Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota, which is our sponsor and has been for a number of years. These conversations would not be possible without that support. Um, thank you, Blue Cross Blue Shield. I wanna let you know that if you found this interesting, um, good news, um, we've got more programs coming up. Um, coming up in about 10 days, uh, we've got a program uh, looking at what's going on at the legislature. It's with Star Tribune political reporter, Brianna Bierschbach and Minnesota Public Radio re political reporter, Brian Bax. Um, there's a lot going on at the legislature. Uh, as I size things up, this could be, you know, um, a kind of pioneering year in terms of progressive legislation, other legislation that's been sitting on the sidelines. We're gonna get into all that um, coming up March 15th, noon central time. Uh, join us for that conversation. We've got a bunch of other events that we'll be posting soon as well. Um, also, today's program, you can get a recording, video recording, or you can uh, follow us on podcast. Um, we'd recommend you sign up on our podcast so you don't miss our events, uh, which we put out about a, one or two days. We'll have it posted. Um, and if you enjoyed this program, please consider making a donation. It helps to continue what we are doing. Once again, big thank you to um, uh, Lucas Nessie, Matt Freeman, Cindy Mann, and uh, I also like to thank my staff who actually did all the work in setting this up, Cody Jacket, and the always impressive Lee Chittenden. Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs>